A hot topic in the press today, it's time to discuss access to gender-affirming care for trans and gender-diverse youth. In recent news, you may have heard about the growing restrictions across many states around access to gender-affirming care for transgender and gender-diverse young people. Opposers to the concept of gender-affirming care for minors speak about the unknown effects of gender-affirming hormones on minors in the long term, or the movement of a social agenda to endanger children. Supporters of Access to Gender-Affirming Hormone Therapy, or GAHT for minors, speak on the positive mental health benefits that have been studied among trans youth. Additionally, pubertal blockers have been noted to protect trans and gender-diverse youth from psychologically damaging body changes that don't align with their gender. Interceding in these discussions are the opinions of government, including lawmakers, governors, and justices, who have given their own formal thoughts and, in some ways, either facilitated or blocked the ability for trans and gender diverse youth to make important decisions for their lives. These decisions also involve the input of parents, healthcare professionals, and mental health professionals who speak with trans and gender diverse youth. At the basis of all of these discussions exists a young person who is navigating social stressors and discrimination from the hostile environment of polarizing opinions about who they are. Who is intervening in protecting access for youth on GAHT? Should governments have the right to interfere in such a delicate and personal topic? Today, we center on the state of the restrictions on access to gender-affirming care in Georgia. Many states, especially in the South, lead the forefront in being against the expansion of this healthcare right for youth. In a state like Georgia, History has shown us that racism, homophobia, and transphobia as systematic oppressors against minoritized people have allowed for trans and gender diverse youth to become the next population of focus for the political gain of some. Georgia Equality, as we'll talk about today, is one important organization in this fight that advances fairness and opportunity for lesbian, gay, transgender, and gender diverse communities and allies within the state. Advocacy organizations and the people within them disrupt the disadvantaged access to healthcare that LGBTQ people may face. I'm happy to dive in this episode as we discussed how our guest, Chanel Haley, within this organization, has been active in having conversations with lawmakers on both sides of the argument about convincing people to care about anti-LGBTQ non-discrimination and policy. We will also discuss how you can get involved as an ally or supporter. Let's begin. Welcome everyone to the Equity Podcast, where we discuss LGBTQ plus health disparities and the efforts to dismantle them. Today, we have Ms. Chanel Haley as the Gender Policy Manager for Georgia Equality. Chanel leads efforts that ensure non-discrimination legislation and policies in broad areas of employment, housing, public accommodations, law enforcement, safe schools, access to healthcare, education, and voter registration are inclusive of access for transgender and gender diverse individuals and communities. She helps to build relationships with businesses and corporate environments that may have little or no LGBT background and experiences throughout the state of Georgia. She also works with elected officials and policymakers locally and statewide, by request, Chanel has been contracted to facilitate sensitivity training and police interactions by the National Center for Victims of Crimes for the City of Philadelphia, a Chicago affiliate, and regularly participates in police scenarios with recruits for the Atlanta Police Academy. She currently facilitates custom trans 101 humility trainings for any type of organization. In 2016 and 2017, her facilitating included the Federal Bureau of Prisons. 
In 2018, Ms. Haley designed a one-year Leadership Academy cohort of trans men and trans women with a $200,000 grant where they learned to effectively communicate about the transgender community, acquire confidence in public speaking, coalition building, civic engagement, policy fundamentals, gain a proficient understanding of government, and how to communicate with elected officials advocating for themselves. At the end of the two separate one-year classes, the 21 participants are now able to apply their newly acquired skills to any career field. The grant has been renewed for two more years. Thank you, Chanel, for your incredible efforts. And we're so happy to have you speak with us. Thank you for having me. Today's episode centers on the growing restrictions on the access to gender-affirming care for transgender and gender-diverse youth. You also work in my home state of Georgia, one of the most conservative states in our country that continues to appear in the media related to restrictions on LGBTQ plus rights. Why do you think in several areas across the country that gender-affirming care for trans youth has become heavily debated? So it goes all the way back still to um, the passage by the Supreme Court around um, marriage equality. And so when that happened, then conservatives or, you know, I can just, this is not a political show. So Republicans needed to find another way of targeting and building up their base, their, their base. And so a low hanging fruit actually is um, going after the youngest and the most vulnerable population, which is just children. Because no matter what side of the fence you're on politically, whether it is, you know, Republican, Democrat, liberal, independent, whatever, is that everyone thinks that you should protect children. And so pointing out and, and, and talking about children and saying, and then demonizing and saying that, you know, these children, these surgeries and procedures around healthcare um, and transitioning to minors um, raises an eyebrow and ears to anyone on any side of the bank. You know, even getting d Democrats, and I work with Democrats, I am a Democrat, I work with the party, uh, I'm deep in, deep in it. But even explaining to them who are, who are allies, but getting them on board to be allies was also a conversation about education. The difference is, is one side is okay with understanding the education and taking it and then learning from it, where the other side is, I don't want to hear it because, uh, you know, I have a base to, to, I have a base I have to answer to, and we don't care what changes. And we saw that, you know, legislation that was passed um, here in Georgia recently. Yes, yes. Um, and I want to, you know, get into soon your conversations with both sides because you have that task which is pretty formidable and um, pretty powerful for like speaking up on these issues um, a powerful position to have so working alongside legislators especially in a southern state rife with conservative values and historical discrimination does not sound like an easy task for you still you serve a unique role as a person of a minority background who has lived experience and training to navigate difficult conversations with stakeholders surrounding controversial topics impacting trans and gender diverse people. What led you to choose a career in LGBTQ plus activism? That's a, that's a very good question. And my answer is not what people think it is. It wasn't a choice. I didn't in fact, I have strong opinions about people who set out to do such things. Um, 
my journey starts out with my personal story in the sense of applying for a job, being denied access to a job, and told verbatim, we don't hire your kind. Then going to the EEOC, making a complaint, and them saying, well, they're right, they don't, they, they, it's not covered and stuff. And so it was actually more personal. And I think the best activist, so we're going to, you know, I, I define activist organizer separately because the activist is a free will. As an organizer working for a, corp, um, a company or a nonprofit organization, I need to stand within our mission and what we do. When you're an activist, you speak up and do what you want to do, how you want to do it, when and where. Okay, so it's a little, it's a little different. But um, I was fighting for myself. And what ended up happening is, is that fighting for myself just to live my life um, turned into a career where other people get to benefit from it. And what I enjoy, actually the only thing I enjoy about my job <laughs> is um, giving people the tools to then be able to advocate for themselves. Because I come from a time when I started doing that, there wasn't any resources. That's why they were allowed to tell me that such a things that we don't hire your kind and that's okay. And then going to the government and saying, you know, and they're saying, well, they're right. There is no, no protections there. And so um, when there wasn't an organization like the one I work for now and where there's several organizations now that actually do advocating and, and where there has been funders who are pouring money into this community, when I first came about, there was not any. And so, again, that's how I got into it. And so it's not what people think. You know, I wasn't sitting at home and saying, I thought I have really, my, okay, my opinions about that is when people, you know, look to be the first at something or like, I'm going to go out and fight for this. I, I give a side eye because it's like, are you doing it for fame? So you can have a, you know, a YouTube special, you know, what's you doing it for? Or are you really thinking that you're going to help people? And so... That's something that I always think about in there, in that aspect for when it comes to community. But I got into it to help myself. And in return, what happened is I'm helping a community also that did lead into career. And again, the part that I like about it is that I'm educating people on how to advocate for themselves. Because I actually truly believe, I, my, my personal belief is that, that learning nonprofit now, particularly, and when it comes to funding, there are fads that come up around FADS and that, you know, eventually they'll move on to the next community that they, that they think needs to pour money into and we're left in the dust. And you still need to know how to advocate for yourself because we're still living, we're still a community, we're still living beings, we still have to advocate. And even when the money is gone and organizations or rich people have decided they don't wanna spend money on us anymore, we still need to be able to do it ourselves like, like it was in the beginning. Certainly. Thank you for giving your testimony and also telling us that you know, there's active, there's activism and organizer, right? And there's so many parts to this. Um, and I want to also ask more deeply, so what can you tell us about your discussions surrounding non-discrimination legislation and policies with Georgia House legislators that the public may not realize in terms of how those conversations go what do people think those conversations look like or maybe like wrongly assume parts of your role that actually say, no, this is something that is a part of it. Like this is something that, you know, I have to do. So what I learned for the time that I actually worked in the Georgia House of Representatives, uh, for four years I worked for them, with them. And 
that's a Republican majority, so therefore I work with them more specifically. At one time, I even the secretary or the uh, legislative assistant to the secretary of the Republican Party. And so what I learned is that whereas in a- activism or in organizing nonprofit to our community, there's the idea we have to change hearts and minds. Let me tell you, that's BS. That ain't happening, okay? What they care about is finances. So you have to make the argument of why financially what your argument is, right? And so that's the, and that's really the, the way we had to do it when it, um, all the times in Georgia where Georgia Equality uh, was able to stop um, RIFRA legislation, uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Acts. Um, and, you know, getting the governor, even though the General Assembly passed it, the governor to not to veto the bill. And you have to make the case and say, hey, this actually hurts our economy. In Georgia, that's way more important than it is about their feelings um, about people. It's the feeling of we're going to lose money or economy that's going to hurt business here. We're not going to be an attractive state because we won't bring business or businesses will lose is how those conversations go when you're talking to Georgia um, legislators, particularly Republicans, because business is what drives Georgians. You make an excellent point. Um, You know, people care about money, especially like in our, you know, country built on capitalism, built on profit making, um, and even across like the states themselves. So you said finance is a huge component. And also following up on that, um, have you had also the opportunity to, you feel like, change hearts and minds of some legislators? Or has it really just been your conversations have to stick to certain reasons why um, these non-discrimination legislation and policies should be adopted? I think Democrats are, 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 are they can change, absolutely, in the sense um, with, because they're, they are more open to social issues and how they affect the public. And again, from experience, talking and dealing with Republicans, there's Republicans that actually like have trans kids and who still will vote in favor of hurting a, their kid. Um, but tr- Republicans are very good at sticking to party lines. Like, my party says we have to do this. I want to do this. I'm not breaking the mold. And that's the difference between a Republican and Democrat. The Democrat will go, will vote based upon their feelings and what they have learned. First, the Republican will say, well, you know, this is what we decided as, as a party. And this is how we're going. Mm, okay. Yeah. I mean, that sounds pretty, you know, cut and dry in terms of like what you've seen. So... Uh, yeah, um, thank you for giving us that insight. I mean, I'm not in those conversations. And um, a, a lot of what I see about, you know, Republican and Democrat things are on the media. There's like media, right? And then there's actually like, what is on, what happens on the floor? <laughs> well, even before the floor, I'll tell you an interesting thing, particularly in Georgia, is that by the time the media gets to it, there was three conversations and meetings that had before that. Um, you know, so one of the people things that people, like most of the public doesn't even know when it comes, especially to our General Assembly, is that they are the only body of government that is um, excused from public meetings or open records. So 
by the time that you're watching them vote or have a hearing with something, there was a meeting before the meeting before the meeting <laughs> that they already decided. They, their numbers are set in stone. So even when you are lobbying to them, back to what I said before, when you, you asked about the, the personal conversations, they've already, they've already negotiated that in their head and within their party. So you could plead to them and they will you know, shake their head and, oh, I'm so sorry about that. But they've already decided this vote is done. That their their whip, their in their party has already whipped them. Their vote is counted, and they are going that route only. Changing their mind is very narrow to do that. You know, they, it has to be something. Maybe a person like who's not going to be in office again next year, who already decided, might be a swing vote. But for the most part, whatever when the, by the time the public knows about it, it has been decided. You know. Thank you for giving us that insight as well. Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, the there's a delay. And so uh, that's important to also realize. So currently, the American Civil Liberties Union tracks five anti-LGBTQ plus bills in Georgia, one of which, SB 140, has been passed into law. Bill SB 140 was signed into law in Georgia on March 23rd which outlaws gender-affirming care as medical and surgical interventions for youth under 18, including beginning pubertal blockers, starting feminizing or masculinizing hormone therapy, or receiving gender-affirming top and bottom surgeries. In several states around the country, access to gender-affirming care for minors has been significantly limited or prohibited completely. When looking at this past bill, I viewed that all the sponsors of the bill were white men, presumably none being transgender or even LGBTQ plus identifying themselves. So I know I gave that backstory, but I'm going to get a little bit, I'm going to go double back a little bit before and ask you how much of your work with Georgia Equality actually pertains to addressing public health issues with legislators affecting um, trans and gender diverse people. So I want to start off with, because we should only talk about facts here. Actually, the legislation that was passed um, does not exclude um, um, puberty blockers. That is the only, uh, puberty blockers and um, mental health are the only two things that was not put in legislation. That's important to, to say. Um, however, um, when what our work was, so a lot, I'm across the board. And the reason why I'm across the board when doing education with anyone is because the transgender community is part of every community. You know, I've talked here about Democratic Republican. There are transgender people who are also Republican too. There are, you know, who are also um, um, white. There who live in rural. Who, you know, um, you know, across the state. There. Is, so we do do work in relation to around um, um, healthcare and healthcare access. Actually, before my executive director, who's with us now, um, Georgia Quality, way before my time, he's the one because he was such a pioneer around um, HIV and AIDS advocacy that um, we do a lot of work around that also, too, in legislation with that, too. And so, um, yeah, it's 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 ingrained in there. I mean, as far as HIV work, I personally am not the expert on that. But just access alone to healthcare, I do. So and the way I do that is, is that I work with um, professors who teach, um, medical professors, as well as um, nursing staff. And then I even worked with um, Grady Hospital 
to help them create their, um, the gender center clinic. And so um, now they don't take youth, but um, that alone was a big thing that ha- that took place a few years ago that was created and that exists today. Um, as far as youth, I also on the side work for a um, another mental health um, facility. It's called All One Family, where that therapist, she actually has a lot of um, youth, so minors that are transitioning. And so with that, making sure that her and her staff um, actually are um, have been introduced to and trained on um, appropriate um, language when dealing with these clients, because, um, you know, medicine alone, whether we're talking about mental health, we're talking about general um, practicing, um, and especially um, what's considered cosmetic surgery, they can be predators when it comes to the transgender community, because they know that that these medical interventions are needed. And so therefore they'll say, I'll take your money, but then they're so disrespectful when it, when it comes down to it. You know, I've experienced it myself when, when it comes to just having medical interventions. And um, we want to make sure that that doesn't take place, especially for when you are vulnerable um, to your mental health. So I'm engaged with all of those at every level there is. And, you know, even the aspect of around housing, which I know we're talked about later, but there's a mental health aspect to that and um, being inclusive around that also. But Georgia Quality, I've been fortunate as the first trans person hired at Georgia Quality um, to be able to be as broad as I like. And again, I'm as broad as I like to be. And there is no limits. It's because, again, we're part of every single community there is. All right. All righty. Yes. So spans, spans the board. Um, and I, I love that she said access as well, because access, when we talk about why do health disparities occur, why do certain communities experience more diseases or have, you know, um, higher mortality or morbidity or whatever metric you want to say, why does that happen? It's because a lot of it has to do with access, right? Like your ability to actually, um, not only feel comfortable going, but then like have people who are trained correctly to work with you. And so I think it's wonderful that you work with people in the medical field. Yeah. That's what I want to point out with that also is that understanding that before the um, Affordable Care Act, that, you know, um, access, of, especially having insurance for transition-related um, um, transition um, procedures and healthcare was almost unattainable for the average trans person because it was so expensive. And so even if you go into the, um, the, the, um, the language of identifying um, with each person. So if you, we talk about Marshby Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, and you'll see a lot of times, um, and if you say interviews like them, they identify themselves as transvestites, right? And um, the reason why is because you, first of all, understanding the time, the time that was in, you know, the 60s, 70s, right? And transsexual, the word transsexual existed, but that meant that you were rich <laughs> and could afford to pay out of pocket to go see a psychiatrist who allowed you to identify as such because of your medical documentation, okay? Um, but because all the other documentation would be the true, the drag queen or trans by side. And so understanding that, and so then when the Obama um, administration came in, that's the first administration ever to say the word transgender, number one. 
And then that opened the doors, making sure that that the access, healthcare access was actually put into the Affordable Care Act. And so that now opened it up so that um, any person who identified as trans could actually go through the medical procedures that needed to be done um, by using um, healthcare because um, um, insurance, because it's actually an expensive process. No matter how you look at it, it's expensive. Just, just alone where it was required, some insurance companies required you to have two to three sessions with a therapist before they would allow you to be on HRT, you know, hormone replacement therapy, is an expensive task. You know, a therapist is anywhere from $50 to $300 per session. And that, yeah, and then, you know, you need the permission to do that. And then that has to be given. And then a lot of times also, general practitioners won't see you. So you have to see a specialist, endocrinologist, specialist, doctors always cost more. So there is a, a total financial access, um, um, component to that. And so, yeah, access is something that we are now actually doing within the past 10 years of making it more accessible to that. And then there's, again, like I said, there's, there's this whole aspect of them not being a predator, a predatory, um, um, medicine, predatory medicine or, um, services to where they also need to be, have a good bedside manner of being able to, you know, be open and respectful with dealing with us as clientele. Right. Thank you for your response. And I, I definitely agree with you. It kind of also circles back to money, right? When we're talking about access as well, like that conversation about finances. Um, and as you and I know, like healthcare and insurers are also a huge barrier to care. Unfortunately for a population that um, doesn't have the ability to necessarily just speak for themselves. It seems like other people have to intervene and speak up for the population. So I wanted to also get into recent uh, rulings. So uh, five states, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, and as of most recent, Kentucky and Tennessee have had federal court decisions that have overruled bans against gender-affirming care for trans youth. Three of these bans were overturned by Trump-appointed judges, Court documents have revealed that certain witnesses against the overturn of these bans are doctors who have never diagnosed or treated a minor who has a gender incongruence or gender dysphoria, as it was formerly called. Here is another instance of cisgender people advocating against transgender rights without knowing anything about the population. Can you tell us if any way it has any effect, how does the overturn of these bans in other states now affect the enforcement of Bill SB 140 in Georgia? So I'll tell you one similarity about that is, is that the legislation that was created was created by a doctor here in Georgia, a, a doctor who is a senator in Georgia. So who doesn't treat, you know, kids at all. So therefore that's similar. Um, but I try to stay away from getting really specific about legislation as I am not a licensed attorney. But what I will tell you is the process is when arguing legislation, they do call a what's called um, um, impact, lit 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 um, impact litigation. So they do pull from the responses that these Supreme Court, these judges have done, right? And that is an argument that can be used here also. Um, you may or may not know, actually, today is um, July 5th. Um, that SB 41 went into effect on July 1st. And that was also when 
um, is, uh, when the lawsuit was filed against City Bill um, 140 to stop it. And so I anticipate that what you just talked about in the a reference of overturning will be used in court arguments around stopping the legislation here. Okay, so for people who may not know, it sounds like there actually will be movement um, to fight this ban. Um, and we um, will probably be seeing um, that in the news soon. So, okay. Um, yeah, thank you for speaking of what you can. I'm really thinking about, you know, the youth and the um, people who are impacted by this bill. Um, what actions do you know of that are, are being taken to support youth in Georgia, TGD, trans and gender diverse youth in Georgia who are affected by this bill, either by you or organizations that you are a part of? So I know the Southern Campaign actually has um, created a fund um, for trans youth to be able to leave um, state, to, to go to a different state to be able to receive the access they need. Similar to what you've heard about when it comes to um, abortion restrictions, which Georgia also has, um, we have the, um, the six-week abortion ban here. And so therefore, the same way where there was funds created to where women can cross state lines and go somewhere else to be able to have abortion access, we have done the same thing. Uh, the Southern um, Campaign for um, Equality here has done the same thing when it comes to our trans youth. Um, but again, I'd like people to rem rem remind them that counseling is still um, something that they should be engaged in that was not stopped. And then also any youth that actually was already part of a medical plan, meaning on HRT prior to July 1st, can remain on their um, health plan because um, they've been grandfathered in. So. If they was already under doctor's care for HRT before July first, that remains. They don't. They're not. The law does not um, allow for them to be stopped. Yeah, that clarification is important um, because it sounds like you know certain people are affected versus other people specifically. And the campaign for Southern Equality you mentioned is that right? Yes. Yes, I've looked at their website. I'll look them as well uh, for listeners to go in and read more about them. Um, you know, I think that it's important to recognize the organizations that also are doing that work as well to support the youth on the ground um, who are affected by this bill. So thanks for, um, yeah, telling us about that. And several arguments have been put against the provision of gender affirming care to youth. These include exploratory psychotherapy will change a child's mind, ensuring that children do not make decisions they don't understand or may regret later in life, protecting minors from being hurt by a social agenda spearheaded by medical organizations, and other arguments that you may or may not have heard of. Of these arguments, which ones have you heard in conversations with legislators? And do you have anything to say about comments about these uh, arguments? So I've heard of all the arguments, um, but let me debunk each one with facts. So the first one, you know, which is the, really the biggest one, is that it's not a... The decision that is made is made with, obviously, the minor, the parent, their mental health professional, and a medical doctor, right? There's always rules in place. And that's backed up also by the, um, the Pediatric Medical Association and the medical um, 
um, American Medical Association, right? They actually have standards. And the myth is, is that they, those, or um, those medical um, agencies are promoting and recommend surgery for minors, which is not true. None of them recommend surgery for minors. What they, there is a actual um, medical, um, sorry, um, a, a, a transition plan, and it usually is a with social transitioning. So let's let this let's let this child or this minor, you know, present as gender identify as first. Okay. Um, then the next thing would be around when we get to the blockers. Okay, they are still confident about this is who they want to be. Let's try the blockers out. Let's pause puberty right now so they can still continue around the class. Can they handle this? Is this what they still want to do? Then there's the legal transitioning, right? Okay, we have already social transitioned. I've called you by your preferred name. Let's now, you're serious. Let's get this taken care of. Now, now let's talk about the age we're talking about now. So we started off with a small child, right? This has went on. We have now puberty blockers because they're about to get in puberty. We paused that. They're still on a, they still want to do it. Now we're talking about, you know, 15, 16, where start thinking about this because in a year or two, they might go off to college. Let's make sure, let's change names. Let's make sure everything's done. So when they go off, they can still then be, uh, go there as the gender they identify as, with the name they identify as, right? And so there's a process. And by that time that they are now getting into um, college, they're now 18. So there's actually a process that actually is in place that's recommended. Just like I say, is when it comes to adults, people who are judging about us adults that transition, they don't understand that the medical diagnosis was gender dysphoria. The treatment was transitioning. People don't know that part. That's the treatment. That's actually, that is what's advised in order for, that's the treatment. The same way if you was on diabetes and you took insulin, this is the treatment. And so that's a major thing there. Um, there is no coercion at all. It's a, a long process and it's expensive. It's really expensive. <laughs> yeah. Yes. 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 As we talked about before. Yeah. And you you make great points and we we should debunk a lot of these uh, i i call them arguments here but some may call them myths and also what's important is listening to the children um or the minors who are the ones who are you know saying to their families or saying to their friends like this is how i identify this is who i am that's exactly what's happening is so you know again my story is very different i didn't get those treatments and many people from my generation when i transitioned you know i transitioned and um um after high school um in 1998 i graduated high school in 1997 right like growing up that was not my life. There was no way my parents would ever do such a thing. <laughs> okay, I didn't come from that kind of family or from that type of time. But I think that it's actually a beautiful thing is that when parents are listening to the children and actually are helping are helping them move along. And that's just not um, mentally, but also physically too. And so I think that people are, again, that's why I think it's important to understand the actual process because it's not like their child comes and said, Hey, um, this little boy came and said, Hey, I'm actually a real girl and I should have, you know, 
I want to be a girl. And the, and the parent was like, oh my God, yes, let's get you some breasts and, 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 you know, and get you, you know, some bottom surgery. That's never how it goes. That's just not a thing. Most doctors would, and when I say most, I'm talking about, I, I'm saying most, so I don't get caught out for, you know, lying, but I don't know of any doctor that would ever um, permit or allow a minor to have bottom surgery in America. That's just not something that happens. The actual, there's a process because they, a lot of them are guided by the associations, medical associations, um, you know, whether it's um, American Medical Association or Pediatric Association. And that's just not in the plan, which is why creating these kind of laws actually just create even more barriers because as we talked about before, you know, when it comes to insurance companies, then this just creates another barrier that was already in place by the insurance company on their side. And also now an army that's against this adult, the, you know, the parents, but now even children. Like who wants to bully children? How, how, how bad are you a person? I mean, we're seeing we're seeing things that you, you don't think you would see, but you see them, you know. And so, uh, you know, I mean, another organization I want to plug in as well is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health as an organization that, you know, dictates a lot of the guidelines uh, for um, providers to abide by when it comes to these um, the situation. And you have. You have people creating bills, as we've talked about, who, again, don't know the community, don't treat people in the community, and then it becomes law. I mean, I really appreciate this conversation that has really delved into the only spe the specific arguments that are made and why they're wrong, <laughs> and then ab about blocking access, but also um, speaking about, you know, what is being done um, in the future as well to... I expect, um, hopefully, allow greater access for um, trans and gender diverse youth in Georgia, hopefully. You brought up um, something um, that I actually do teach about also. I do a whole presentation about it. It is about being, you know, aside from advocating, but understanding that there's different ways of advocating. And one, again, if you go to my full bio, is that I have set a lot of boards of commissions up and down the um, government, you know, from the bottom to the top. And that's one way that I think that we really should be getting involved in more. That's one way you can get involved is because as you're right, is that there are legislators, even the, the most liberal, nicest legislator that we're talking about, you know, in freaking California, right? They don't have the experience of everything. They came in with a job from whatever job their professional was is, right? They might know friends that know this and that, but they have the power to not only create laws, but then also oversee different policies. And what ends up happening is, is that um, they don't know what they're talking about, right? So a person who has never been to prison or and doesn't know any, anyone in their family's been to prison, how do they create you know, laws about prison, <laughs> right? And that's where the public comes in. It's because you need public. So we're talking about community advocacy boards, um, or community advisory boards, right? And so that's something that we can be doing as a community is making sure that we, as a trans and gender, gender variant community, should be in front of these elected officials and getting them to know us. So when these laws and policies and recommendations come up, they have someone to reach out to who knows the community, because I'm part of the community, um, the good and the bad, and they can advise on that.
that's that is that is the path to take moving forward. Um, now, because everyone has access, and you have a right. I mean, your legislator has a right. You have a right to access your legislator, and your legislator, if they're good, and there's something that comes, up, they don't know anything about. They should reach out to a person in the community to get the information. Certainly, and community advisory boards, I'm all on board with. And yes, uh, I appreciate you plugging in, plugging in that. So, as you stated, your bio is long, and I I read some of your efforts, but I'm sure I haven't read everything you've done. Um, but I did want to talk about uh, one important issue in the trans and gender diverse youth community, which is. Uh, housing instability and how that is a social determinant of health um, has also um, impacted trans and gender diverse people. As you know, LGBTQ plus people and especially trans and gender diverse folk have higher rates of living unhoused, especially as youth compared to non-LGBTQ plus people. A recent study revealed almost a quarter of respondents to the Youth Risk Behavior Survey between 2017 and 2019 who were transgender identified they were living unhoused during the prior month. You can imagine how this number might change if we were to ask for the prior year or if at all. Many of the reasons relating to living unhoused stem from familial discrimination and being kicked out, living in unsafe or unstable environments, or not having the financial means to support oneself. What implications have you seen that being without housing has on the ability for trans youth to access gender-affirming care? Let me start off with sex trafficking. Sex trafficking, sex, sexual abuse. So um, particularly here in Georgia, what would happen is when you go outside of Atlanta, because everybody thinks about Georgia, think about Atlanta. Atlanta is the city, that but it's, that's the liberal city. And even at its core, it's not as liberal as people think it is, but that's the liberal city. You know, we see TV, oh, gay and trans, no big thing, no big deal there, right? And it's, it is a deal, but it may not be as harsh as it is when you go outside of Metro Atlanta. So when a child um, or young person then comes out about being gay or, or wants to transition, um, the problems that arise from that is, number one, family rejection. And then when we also talk about moving out into rural Georgia, there usually is like one doctor per county. People don't realize that either. Is that there is no hospital. It's usually a doctor, the doctor that you've seen your entire life, and they're not okay with that. And you can't go to the doctor and then just talk to the doctor about it without them telling your family because things there are a lot more personal because it's a smaller community. And so because of that, then they think like the rest of the nation, well, if I get to Atlanta, everything will be great. But there's a journey from down there to up here. And, and the journey is when sex trafficking happens. Um, someone older or um, sexual deviant would take advantage of you. And then even getting here, now what, right? Atlanta's a lot more expensive than it was in the small town that you came from. And so um, what ends up happening is that, well, there's this club here. The club says you get in free before 11. I'm going to hang out at the club. So I'll get in the club, you know, I'm going to, you know, hang out there all day long. You know, you, you got, what, five or six hours you can stay in there where you're not on the streets. And so, you know, probably engage in liquor and given drugs. And then um, you're going to go home with somebody probably older um, because you need a place to lay your head and you're doing that exchange for sex, right? 
Now you've been learned that if I get sex, I will make money to have over my head. So then you become a sex worker. Folks, you're doing survival sex now to be able to survive, which then also may lead into um, contracting HIV or any other STI. And from there, you know, then what happens when it comes into your healthcare around that, right? So that puts you in a different category when it comes to any healthcare. When it comes to um, transition-related healthcare, you know, you're up there, up here. Well, again, the barriers around that is that, remember, it's expensive and you didn't have a home. You probably didn't have the education either to be able to get um, a, um, a good job, be able to pay for that, or that gives you insurance. So there's that issue also. Um, and what I get, the most calls I get, usually even in my position here at Georgia Quality, are people living from somewhere else that has access. So like, <laughs> there's people who call from like New York. And I'm like, why would you come to Atlanta if you're coming to New York? Because New York has all the access. And then they get here like, well, what do I do? Like, well, I don't know, girl, because we ain't got that here. <laughs> we don't, you know, what you're asking for, um, what you're used to, we don't provide here unless you meet in that special population of saying that you are living with HIV and then you're going to get um, access. Again, because there was a time when a trans person, a living with HIV, you get zero services. And even then, you would have to be, they would identify you as MSM. They wouldn't even identify you as trans. So that's me, again, has changed over the last 10 years. And so um, housing is the same thing also, is that um, housing at one time was only going to be provided if you are living with HIV. And because there was no organizations that cared about you unless you had, unless you, actually, unless you had AIDS. They didn't went to HIV, and um, now there's organizations that actually will assist. But even when it comes to if there is organizations in Atlanta or in Georgia that house that are specific about um, housing for our trans community, that still does not exist either. What I have worked on and what has ended up happening is in Metro Atlanta, because Metro Atlanta has a non-discrimination ordinance that includes accommodations, that any housing um, facility should, um, by law, are supposed to allow a trans person to stay there and also to be able to um, assign them housing based upon the gender identity without requiring any surgeries. So that's where we are with the city of Atlanta. That changes though when you get outside of Atlanta, right? And then, as you said before, those barriers around, you know, just having a place to stay also creates a barrier when it comes to health access. Yes, yes. I mean, you make an excellent point. Um, you know, I didn't mention this. My dad works in a, a jail under Grady as uh, a corrections officer. And so he also works with gender and gender diverse people who come into the jail. And you, you may find that what you just said, going back to how does this how does this affect access to care or how does this affect like care at all for gender trans and gender diverse people if you don't have a house your family may not qualify for health insurance if you don't have a house you may not have a safe place to even store your medications if you receive them if you don't have a house everything you said as well pertains some trans individuals first time getting hrt is in jail because they lie. You know, when you go in and they do the intake, they ask you if you're on any medications. And they'll say, oh, yeah, I take, you know, because they know the medications. And then they'll give that to you if you're there long enough. So 
for some of them, that's the first time. Okay. I didn't know that either. Yeah. So now we see how institutions facilitate that access as well. And should it be that way? I mean, hey, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. <laughs> should somebody's first time be, I mean, no. But the fact that they, that's something that they're receiving in that, I mean, it's it's such a complicated issue. I think, um, you know, it's, it's important definitely to recognize how where you are also affects your access as well. So going forward to some of your other outreach. So some of your outreach has centered on gender humility trainings. And we live in a time where people politicize and stigmatize gender. Yet we know gender is more than identifying as a man or a woman. Non-binary and gender non-conforming are also terms that trans youth have been exemplifying more and more. Yet people may disagree with respecting a child's pronoun change or wish to stop playing in gender segregated activities. What type of pushback do you find in your discussions around gender humility in the school setting specifically? Because I read that you also have been in the schools. Am I right? I have been in schools. Uh, most of it, um, in fact, all of it, except for um, have been universities and colleges, except for one of our to high school. And um, the pushback, Generally, and this is schools, housing, across businesses across the board. The major pushback usually is around two things. One is the pronoun usage of identifying and you know um, neutral um, pronouns, and their argument usually is is just not grammatically correct. So it is you know how we were taught at our most basic around um, language arts. And how to use it. So that's the first thing they can't get past because you're, you know, you're told that for 12 years of how <laughs> what pronouns are and switching it up for them is an issue. And then the other one, when it comes to transitioning and respecting, we get into um, body parts, anatomy. Well, I can't let this trans I can't let this you know this trans person identify as female because they still have a penis, but. The number first question is, is like, girl, how you know that? You don't know what they got, number one. And number two is, is your place to know that any, anyway. And, you know, it is about them having to realize that um, man, woman, um, non-binary, it's about more than just actual body parts. So those are the biggest challenges when we talk about humility. Um, a lot of other things that they see, especially when I'm presenting it around, um, in the sense around work culture, you know, um, presenting about, you know, federal agencies and what they say. So, you know, again, they don't want lawsuits, you know, law, their money's been affected. The same way I was saying before with General Assembly, they kind of back off around that. But um, my approach is always about meeting people where they are. It doesn't do good for me to sit and tell you what you're saying offends me and I'm going to yell at you because then we are in impasse and we're, it's not going to get through. So I meet people where they are, which is the reason why I think that I'm pretty good at talking um, and I'm really reset, um, get a, a good reception when I am actually in large groups of people because they will say and ask questions that are absolutely offensive. However, that I understand, again, they're basing off of what they know of how they were raised and um, what they come from. And to be quite honest, most of that 
was also my upbringing and raised too. Remember I said, I wouldn't be able to do any transitioning, you know, in the 90s. Because I was raised from a family who thought the same way that the people I'm in front of right now think of. And so I already know where you're coming from. So let me present it to you this way. And that is um, one way that I've been able to get into all groups of people in different environments. The school, the schools, particularly high schools, the best way of doing that is if they have a GSA. So that stands for um, Gay Straight Alliance. So that they already have a built-in um, allyship. There's an adult there that is over that, and then there's your classmates there. And so it's kind of um, getting soldiers to do your bidding or to uh, carry your message for you, right? And so it's actually a more inviting environment. Um, if a school has a GSA, Gay Trade Alliance, then um, the children in there, um, the youth in there that are general performing are actually a lot happier because they have a um, support system. Okay, um, I just wanted to ask, because some people actually listening to this might feel inspired to get into the work that you do. What message do you have for any person who wants to get involved with government and or legislative work pertaining to injustices in the LGBTQ community? Number one thing is, please have a very, very thick skin. <laughs> this can be very personal work or impersonal work. It depends on how your approach is. Um, I recommend that you don't take it personally because if you did, you would break down ASAP. Um, you know, I can't emphasize that enough. And I know that... Um, a person who wants to get involved is because of passion, but the defeats that we get, particularly here in the South, um, can really break you. So that is my number one. You have to go in knowing that. It would be the same as social work. A lot of people, I want to help, but the stories you hear, you know, about neglect with children or abuse, right? Think about that way too, is that you cannot take that home with you every single day or else you would not survive in social work, okay? So understanding that. Um, the second thing is, is that start up with volunteering first. Start up with volunteering. Go to organization, volunteer. Um, we all take volunteers. We Volunteers you could do, whether it is making phone calls, um, adore the quality about uh, registering somebody to vote, uh, about, about um, registering to vote, making sure that they're voting, um, supporting a petition or not. There's that. There is I would love to have volunteers for me when I'm at all the pride festivals, but it touches my heart every time that there's a child there and the child is having fun. They are oblivious to the legislation and the protesters outside. They are there to get like the free candy and all the swag and hear the music and seeing people happy. And that is, it's just beautiful. It's like, they have no idea the drama behind putting this pride event on and the backlash that comes with the pride, right? And so that is what touches my heart every time I go to a pride event. Um, there's also the sense of um, money. Money is always good. You want to do donations. That's the way to um, supporting organizations um, that um, do causes that they that you believe in. Um, you know, especially when you're a recurring donor. Even if it's just an event, you know, a Georgia Quality, we put on a, a fundraising event once a year, a call it for Quality. So just find a ticket and come into that. You get to dress up, be nice, smooth with all of us. Wonderful, right? That's a one-time thing. Um, there is other ways, you know, again, um, supporting this, like this kind of work here. Listening to this and opening up yourself 
about um, being educated. And then, um, as you said earlier about even inviting someone like myself to come and do humility trainings or education talks in your organizations, being whether it's your school, your sorority, your fraternity, your church, your job, I feel accomplished if one or two people in there um, understand the uh, adversities and understand how to get involved and how to actually um, move through society with humility in relation to the gender um, non-conforming community. I really love that perspective and I love the diversity of things that people can do. And so I know you'll continue doing amazing work and um, it just makes me so happy that, uh, yes, of course, it makes me so happy that we have people, you know, really being on the front lines and speaking up for these issues that are affecting, you know, the community. And, um, you know, as a Georgian, like, I'm just happy to like know you. So again, thank you so much for coming. Those are all my questions. Thank you for having me. As you've heard, monumental efforts are happening across state lines to grant access to gender affirming care to trans and gender diverse minors. Federal courts are intervening in the name of constitutional rights to speak up for minors and demand healthcare justice for them. We're seeing in real time a fight for this segment of the LGBTQ population's rights playing out. The implications are huge. Youth within states who have had bans overturned or their rights protected will likely suffer less difficulty in addressing their gender incongruence and getting the health care they deserve. For youth in areas of the country and world where these rights are not being defended, more litigations are happening and protests are occurring to expand access to gender-affirming care for minors. Chanel's roles as an educator and activist bridge understanding with lawmakers so they can make informed decisions despite the topic being a partisan issue. Like Chanel, you can be an important advocate in your community, whether that's in pushing legislation, investigating through research, or spreading updates through media. Fighting in favor of the healthcare rights for trans youth, we are lessening the likelihood that they will encounter higher rates of suicide, drug abuse, smoking, and other diseases. If you would like to learn more about efforts being made in the South to fight for equality for LGBTQ people, including access to gender-affirming care for minors, visit southernequality.org. As well, if you'd like to read more about Georgia equality and discover more about Georgia's specific progress in this arena, visit georgiaequality.org. And to track anti-LGBTQ bills across U.S. states, visit the site of the American Civil Liberties Union at www.aclu.org slash legislative dash attacks dash on dash LGBTQ dash rights. Let's continue to push the conversation more on Instagram at Equity Podcast or on Twitter at Equity Pod. I'm looking forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take care until then.